Welcome to Top Dogs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. And today we're speaking to Pedro Koss, whose documentary film is Rebel Hearts about some radical nuns in 1960s Los Angeles. I had a chance to sit down with my sister, Cara Merrill. We talked about our days as Catholic school kids back in Bronze, Vermont. We both had 12 full years of Catholic schooling, and the nuns influenced us both, but Cara even more profoundly, as we'll hear in this segment. Our first Catholic school was Mater Christi. We went there from first to eighth grade. Cara, what are your memories of Mater Christi? I loved it. I really enjoyed the Sisters of Mercy. I remember them as being a joyful group. Them coming and playing guitar, a ton of singing, playing with us on the playground, jumping rope with us, roller skating with us. They like the arts. They're into poetry and musicals, Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> but it was academically interesting and pretty rigorous at the same time, I'd say. They really mixed up the arts with hardcore academics. The nuns, I knew them. And now I recognize this was probably in the wake of Vatican II. We're not focused solely inwardly on themselves, on their order, on religion. Yeah. They were political and outwardly focused. Some of the nuns were very big supporters of Cesar Chavez, uh, a labor leader of mainly Latino farm workers in California yeah. and a very Catholic. And they told us to support Cesar Chavez and the farm workers of California that we weren't supposed to eat grapes. It took me years to eat grapes. I, still, it's a little bit hard for me to eat grapes. They were definitely outward looking and political. And it was funny because when I worked at the Salvation Army, I was running a fundraising group there. One of the proposals, I put this little quote from Gandhi. I remember being told, oh, no, no, he's a Hindu. Why would we put a quote from a Hindu there? I was like, oh, huh, interesting. Because I know the Sisters of Mercy never would have censored that. They probably really would have appreciated a quote from Gandhi in a proposal to raise money for them. I also remember KKK was coming to town. They were going to march in town and the sisters talking to us about that. And they're going to go protest that. I think it was Sister Claire that had been down to D.C. telling us about how she was down at, I think it was an anti-nuke protest. She had some protests which got spit in the face. Do you think that they affected you lifelong? I do because before I went to Monte Cristi, when I was like in pre-K and kindergarten, I was always told, use your indoor voice. I never heard that at Monte Cristi. And as a matter of fact, because I, I guess I was loud, <laughs> they would have me like MC or have the role that was front and center to project. So I guess I was one of the kids who could project across their auditorium. To this day, I'm pretty well-versed at speaking in front of groups. I think that has served me very well through life. They took a bunch of us, the girls in our class, to their camp, and they gave us assertiveness training for the day. The first part was aggressiveness versus assertiveness. So I wanted to make sure we're not being aggressive. <laughs> make sure we are assertive and knew how to speak up. And they had us role play. If you're in line at a grocery store and, a, and an adult cuts in front of you, how to get the attention of the person. I remember we went around the room and we would say what each other's gifts were. What gift do you have in the, for them is to give to your community and to give back to God. I've taken that through life with me that there's a calling. It's not just about career and money, but there should be a calling that, is, that has stuck with me. I guess I'm still not in the private sector. I do nonprofit. I've done nonprofit and public sector my entire career. Those were probably the most educated women that I did know coming up. I think of Sister Louise. She taught calculus and trig. I think she taught university as well. She also taught Greek, apparently. 
And these were actually probably some of the more educated women I saw growing up. Growing up, I never saw a female doctor, for example, or attorney. But I recognized that these ladies had like doctorates and were well-educated. Also, as a young female, here's a group of ladies. Not that I necessarily wanted to emulate them, but we didn't seem to care what they looked like. Very much as a young girl, a lot was about what you look like. And so here's a different way to be. You could be smart and you could be educated and not be consumed with how you appeared or attracting a male partner. And athletics too. Yep. A lot of the non-sister Janet Rock was highly athletic and mm -hmm. was out there. I'm just playing basketball with us. Let's play some baseball. She's always wearing sweatpants out there. She definitely encouraged just to be out there and be athletic because I've continued to run to this day and athletics and being physically active has been really important to me. Wow, you have a lot of points here. Did you think about this consciously or is this sort of dawning on you right now? When I first went to college, people were like, oh, you really, where'd that come from? I did think, I'd say, I think it's from my sisters of mercy. Like they're the ones who first talked about having a calling and being concerned about your community and the world. I think you have an interesting story about how when you went to college, they asked you if you were afraid of nuns. You have to go into the career center to get your work study assignment. They want me to work in campus ministry. And they went through a couple and then they looked up, hopefully said, are you, would you be, are you afraid of nuns? And I said, am I afraid of nuns? No. Awesome. Yeah, they're so happy. They found a person who wasn't afraid of nuns. Watching this film, like how did the nuns affect me? Wow. If they affected me, I wonder how they affected Cara. I wonder if, you know, some of Cara's dedication to politics, dedication to feminism. <laughs> I wonder if some of the modeling for that may have come from the Sisters of Mercy. Absolutely. It wasn't 100% from there. I remember you came home with some AMC International brochures or some literature. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. And so you left in the kitchen, so I was picking it up and reading it, and I did a 5K run for, oh, God, it's Guatemalan refugees, I think. Combining some of your interests, right? Yeah, being a runner and politics. I call myself a recovering Catholic. I also say, basically... While I am philosophically agnostic, I am culturally still very Catholic. I really believe in service, taking care of the less fortunate is something that I think is still very much part of me. And I think that comes from the faith. Where are you in terms of faith? Are you a, a believer? Are you a Catholic? No, I'd say similar. I'm agnostic. I've never given up. I think there's a lot that we don't understand. But this whole mystery, you will feel it or feel the presence. True belief, no. I, I am true faith. Like. Just you got to accept it and take it on faith. That part didn't resonate. I just recollect behind their buildings, there was pine needles. I remember they had us kneel on yeah, the yeah. pine needles and do our rosaries in front of the statue of Mary. We had little jumpers on. So we had our knees on the pine needles doing the rosary. So like an understanding the pain that Jesus went through. That's where the whole guilt thing, I guess, comes through. But I guess the bigger understanding that there's a lot of pain out there and it's not all positive. They really didn't sugarcoat it. They're very joyful, very musical, but they also understood that there's a lot of pain out there that needed to be addressed and that we need to kneel in pine needles and say our rosaries to empathize with that pain. it's really interesting to hear the, the personal connections that you and Cara and Pedro have to the Catholic Church. And I think many viewers of this film will bring similar personal experiences to their viewing of the film, for sure. 
for me, I don't have that direct connection, but the film really did get to me as well. Besides the story of the nuns, which I was not familiar with, what really got to me was the, the artistry that Pedro and his creative team brought together on this film and some of the sequences, especially when you layer in the music, really built to just an emotional climax for me. I wanted to let everybody know who Pedro Cas is in terms of his previous credits. Pedro has primarily been known as an editor, and for good reason. Over the last decade, he's become one of the top editors in documentary. His credits include Wasteland in 2011, which was directed by Lucy Walker, and the film was nominated for an Oscar. He also worked with Lucy as the sole editor and writer on The Crash Reel in 2013. And he edited The Square, which was directed by Jahan Nujaim and produced by Kareem Amir, and that film was Oscar nominated. Annie worked as the sole editor on The Island President by John Shank and Bonnie Cohen in 2013. A lot happened for Pedro in 2013. Clearly that was his breakout year. Three different directors, all different languages, the film stories set on three continents, and yet the consistency there is Pedro Caz was the editor. While Pedro continues to edit, and serves as consulting editor now on many projects. In recent years, he's gone back to directing, which was really where he started out, as we hear in the interview. In 2017, Pedro made his feature documentary directorial debut with Bending the Arc, which was also directed by Keith Davidson. Pedro's awards include a primetime Emmy for outstanding picture editing for nonfiction programming in 2014 for The Square. And as producer, he was nominated for a primetime Emmy for The Great Hack in 2020. Lastly, Pedro has a film coming onto the Netflix platform soon, a short documentary called Lead Me Home that he directed with John Shank. So definitely keep an eye out for that. It's not surprising to me that he's an editor recognized for his skill because the mix in this film of music and interviews and archival footage and text and animation, the melding of that, the very craftful melding of all that, you can really sense in this film. Absolutely. As usual, we would urge everyone who hasn't yet seen the film to check it out on the Discovery Plus platform. And after that, I'm sure you're going to fall in love with the music. So be sure to seek out the original motion picture soundtrack featuring original songs by Sharon Von Etten and Rufus Wainwright and original music from Ariel Marks. Coming right up, our discussion with Pedro Koss. Pedro, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Hi, Pedro. Thanks for joining us. And congratulations on Rebel Hearts. Thank you so much, Ken. It's so great to be here with you. First of all, it looks like you're drinking a mug full of pens and pencils. I hope you're not. <laughs> it's a unicorn <laughs> tea holder. Our brilliant writer editor on Rebel Hearts gave this to me. Let me ask you the big question we like to ask everyone, which is why do you make documentary films? Oh, that's a great question. Why didn't I become a doctor like my mother always wanted me to? I guess like doctors, I'm a very curious person and have always loved getting to know different worlds and different, um, different experiences, but that get 
to the core of what makes us tick, to the core of our humanity. I think documentaries can shift our perspective in such powerful ways, in such organic, incredible ways. I'm always wanting to be challenged and to learn. For me, this is the best place to, to get to a core humanity through storytelling. Can you tell us quickly what Rebel Hearts is about? In the 1960s, Los Angeles, a trailblazing group of nuns, the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, bravely stood up to the patriarch of the Catholic Church. They fought for equality, their livelihoods, and their own freedom against the all-powerful Cardinal McIntyre, who sought to keep them in their place. Their bold acts of defiance and activism turned the church upside down. It's causing waves still today. Sure is. Sure is. I think many people first came to know you as an editor. You developed a reputation, I think, richly deserved as one of the top editors in the documentary world. You edited such great films as The Square, The Crash Reel, The Island President, Wasteland. Recently, in the last couple of years, you made the transition from editor. You've added director to your title, and I just wanted to hear why you decided to make that transition to director. The transition has been a a long time coming. I always wanted to be a director since I was 11 years old. I I fell in love with films and stories and I always wanted to be at a place where I am able to help tell and, and shape these stories. I studied theater at college, but I wrote and directed a feature film outside of my class, I had to learn how to edit for that. No one in my class knew. I sat down and I learned the the software, which at that time was Media 100. And I fell in love with the process of editing. I saw that's where uh, a story really comes together. The film comes to life. We take all the ingredients, we bring together the footage, the sound, the sound design and the music, and you create that roller coaster ride that is so immersive and takes you on an incredible journey. Got out of college and I started working in post-production and I was editing on the sides, editing little promos for friends, colleagues. I, I continued on the editorial path, always knowing that I wanted to, to direct, but it was a way for, for me to pay my bills, to make a living. I never went to film school, but I think part of my education and part of my a journey as a filmmaker really was being an editor. I am so lucky to have worked with incredible filmmakers from Jessica Sanders, Frida Mock, the Lucy Walker, John Shank, Bonnie Cohen, and Jahan Jaime, just to name a few. I've tried to be as much of a sponge as I could be, learn the craft, and I guess find my voice in a certain way. But it, it got to a point where I felt ready to to finally make that trend to take a step back from editing and dive into directing. I, I did with Ben in the Ark, which was my first directorial film, which I co-directed with Keith Davidson that came out 2017. For me, that was always the goal. And now I'm, I've been an editor on the films that I've directed and I probably continue to do so in a certain way, but I cannot be the only editor on the film that I'm directing because otherwise I will literally go crazy. That's the beauty of collaboration. I think you, you need uh, multiple perspectives to elevate, you know, elevate a story. As I understand it, you grew up in Brazil. I think Brazil is a very Catholic country. I'm wondering about your early relationship with the church. Yes, I did grow up in Brazil. I grew up in a Catholic family. My parents were not officially married when I was born because my father was married twice before. At that time in Brazil in the 1970s, there was no divorce. Officially, in the eyes of the church, I was born out of wedlock. And so I guess I'm a bastard child. Regardless, my parents raised me Catholic and it took me to church. 
They were denied communion, but we still went. I really value this because they gave me this gift of the faith. They would say we were a Catholic despite the Catholic Church, meaning despite the institution. Growing up, I was always able to separate the faith from the very fallible institution that is created by men. And my mother definitely highlighted the word, this very fallible institution led by very fallible men. My father's side of the family has a very strong social justice side of the faith. They're family of doctors, very much drawn to the love thy neighbor, forgiveness, compassion, treating everyone with the same kindness and respect and, and, and love. That was really ingrained on me and in me from a very early age. In 2015, when Shawnee Isaac Smith, our amazing writer-producer, and Kira Carsonson, our other amazing producer who approached me with this story, I immediately fell in love with their imagination and they're part of the institution in, in such a huge way, but they're able to see beyond it and what their faith is really calling them to. So it felt like for me, a very personal story when Rebel Hearts came to me. Just to get myself on record here, I went to Catholic school for 12 years and I'm still a recovering Catholic to this day. Did you have experience with nuns in Brazil or in the U.S.? Or what was your view of nuns before you undertook this project? My mother always did a lot of work with Mother Teresa's charity in Brazil. She used to remark of how joyful they were, despite working in and administering to the neediest places in Brazil and in, and in Rio. And the neediest places in Rio are extremely needy. The enormous chasm between the rich and the poor in Brazil is astounding. So she was very inspired by Mother Teresa's order. And so that was always passed on to me. But I also had the very traditional view of nuns, especially educators who were supposed to be very strict and dour and very conforming. I didn't know the story of, about the Immaculate Heart Sisters in LA until Shawnee and Kira came to me with it. And I was blown away. It basically shattered every image and stereotype of nuns. I still consider myself Catholic, but as a gay man, I still very much am outside, feel very much an outsider in the institution. I was surprised by this story about these group of nuns who were able to see beyond that institution. They did shatter my preconceptions of what a nun uh, was supposed to be. Shawnee and Kira came to you, I think in 2016, with this story, and you were immediately struck by it. Can you tell us a bit more about what work they had done on the project prior to you coming on board? Shawnee actually began the project over 20 years ago. She started filming these extraordinary interviews, I think the very late 90s, early 2000s. And that time she met the Immaculate Heart community through a friend who was one of the former sisters and was in the Immaculate Heart community, Lorraine Duraco. Shawnee also was, I think, very moved by the story and really saw it as a, a hero's journey. Asked for permission, they granted and just set about to really get the, the firsthand accounts from the, these extraordinary women. And at that time, Many uh, of them were still alive and well, like Anita Caspery, Pat Reef, Helen Kelly, 
just to name a few, Shawnee did over 50 interviews of these women and stuck with it and, and filmed the community for 15 years. There was many obstacles. And this story is about nuns in the 1960s, people don't think it as uh, equated as a huge blockbuster film. But once Shawnee approached Kira in 2015 with the story, they, Kira immediately thought of me. Kira's a dear friend and an amazing producer. So they came to me as actually October 5th, 2015, I think was our first meeting. That was when I was like, I, I, I love this. This is too great for me to pass on. So that's when I came on board. There was this treasure trove of in incredible interviews and some archival that she had already amassed. And I came on board. I continued to interviewing more and then filming more with the community, really grounding it in the present day. In terms of your creative process, your iterative process, did you just sit down and watch those 50 interviews? Shawnee had actually done an assembly a cut. I started with that. And then I started watching the interviews, especially of Anita and Helen Kelly and Pat Reef and, and Dorothy Dunn at the heart of the story. And, I, I, and then I also read Anita Caspery's book, uh, Witness to Integrity. It's actually quite a page turner. It's an extraordinary account from Anita's perspective of actually what happened. But one of the incredible things about Anita is that she's not only a brilliant writer, but she's so thorough. The book is heavily annotated. Everything is referenced, letters, meeting documents. It was an incredible entry point to the story. It's left a lot of breadcrumbs for us in terms of where we're going to find materials, archival for some of these, these things. Then we began like twofold. One direction was archival search. We brought on right away an archival producer, Gabriella Ricketts. I was like, read this book. <laughs> My book is like all marked up, full of like flags. And then let's start digging for so much of the, the, these materials. And then secondly, there was not a story about the past. It's a story about today because the movements that are taking part in, the fights and the struggles very much feel like the ones that we are grappling with today, individually and as a society. We also began to film the community today, members like Lenore Dowling, Rosa Manriquez, who are going out and marching and going to immigration detention centers, going to the border. This story really needed to be grounded in today because it informs so much about who we are and where we are at today. In order to understand the film, understand what's going on, understand the motivations and what facilitated some of this for this particular order of nuns in the 60s, obviously there's a bunch of different threads. There's the women's liberation movement, as we called it. Seems a little funny to call it that now, but that's what it was called. Civil rights, the general changes on the campuses in the US and across the world. And then of course, very importantly, the Second Vatican Council of 1963-64, and then the backlash in the later 60s. The idea of the Second Vatican Council is often presented as modernizing the church. Probably the biggest change for the lay person was the move from the mass being in Latin to the mass being in English. But for the nuns, what was the impact of the Second Vatican Council? The impact was enormous. It was very much the motivation for implementing a lot of the changes that they were implementing. The Second Vatican Council is it's huge watershed moment in the Catholic Church. What they termed it at the time was to open the windows and doors of the church to the world. It was an invitation to be a part of the world, to not be so isolated. A lot of that came from seeing the horrors and the atrocities of the Second World War. The church was 
way overdue for a reckoning. Dorothy Dunn in, in the film says that it implemented a lot of the changes that the Immaculate Heart sisters were already internally doing even before Vatican II, which was the process of empowering their sisters, empowering their community members to be more autonomous, to be leaders. But when Vatican II, especially the decree called Perfecta Caritas, which was a decree in 1965 that came out of the council, which told religious orders, both men and women, to go back to their original documents and to find the meaning and how that their original inception applied to the world as it was in the present. There were orders both for, of men and women around the world and in the United States that were doing the same thing, that were going back and looking at their inception documents and really rethinking of what their role was and began to reform. So there were orders around the country that were reforming. The Immaculate Heart Sisters were no different. They took that to heart. They were inspired. They were thrilled. They felt empowered to even take it a step further to what they were already doing. Not just to shed the habits, but to bridge the gap, to not put themselves on a pedestal. Being holy doesn't put you aside. It was bringing the sacred into the secular to be a part of that world and to help see everything in a certain way as sacred, very much like Carita's art. It was really this movement of being a part of the world, of being better teachers, being better educators. That's why they were going back to school. That's why they, as an order, had more advanced degrees than all of the priests in Los Angeles combined. That's why they individualized prayer schedules. Everyone who is on different schedules, on different teaching schedules, on different learning schedules. So it really empowered them to, to be more autonomous, to be critical thinkers, and to be a part of the world. They really took those decrees to heart. One of the things you show, and it just works great on film because it's so visual, is the change in the habit. So the traditional clothes that nuns wore, you see the process of that changing, getting less restrictive, getting more diverse. You might think, oh, this is just clothes, but it's way more than clothes. That amazing interview where sister comes, puts on her habits, she just changes. And the interviewer says, he's changing. Yeah, that, that is such an extraordinary moment. That's Dorothy Dunn, who was sister Dorothy Ann. She was skeptical about needing to shed the habit to go to secular clothes. But I think at that moment, she really understood how that habit is a barrier, is like a wall. And we all bring our own preconceptions and prejudices when someone is wearing that clothes. When we see a priest with a collar, that immediately brings our own prejudices and preconceptions of what a priest is and supposed to be and how they think and how they act. And we project that onto that person. They noticed that and they saw that as a big barrier. How are they supposed to teach the kids to question authority, to be critical thinkers when they are wearing these pieces of clothing that signify conformity? And that moment, in a beautiful, almost unspoken way, when the camera goes into Dorothy, you can almost read her mind of that perspective change in her. I love that you singled that moment out because it is such a, like a perspective shifts moment for her and it kind of embodies for the, the community as well.
you mentioned this early on as a hero's journey. As with all heroes' journey, there is an antagonist. And boy, do you have a good one. Of course, talking about Cardinal McIntyre, he truly represents everything opposed to all the things you were just describing, not only the Second Vatican Council, but the sisters' philosophy about being a part of the world, and then seeing the power of connecting with people in their everyday work, in the schools, etc. But Cardinal McIntyre is all about resistance to change and upholding tradition for the sake of upholding tradition and upholding, above all, authority, namely his authority. My question is, in your opening pre-title sequence, which I think is the master class in how to create a, a pre-title sequence, so hats off to you and the team for doing such a great job. One of the things that the pre-title sequence does is it establishes the main characters, the nuns, the sisters, and it establishes Cardinal McIntyre as their main obstacle and opponent. And it also, of course, establishes the stakes, which are very high. Can you talk about how you both brought in all those elements into a very short pre-title sequence and kept it simple so that we could follow what was going on. Absolutely. And, and thank you, by the way, that opening title sequence. I have to really give a huge shout out to a couple of people. First is our incredible motion graphics team, especially Emma Berliner and Juan Del Can. We threw a lot of things at them. Here, take all these headlines, take all this archival material, take these interviews, create artwork and bring it to life in a way that's never been done before. But we also had a brilliant original song by Sharon Van Etten, who was inspired by the story. That song, Conjunction, really flowed out of her. But openings are really hard, Ken. Openings are usually, for me, they're always almost the last thing to come together. Because in a way, you're setting up the journey. You need to set up the stakes. You need to set up the characters and what kind of a ride that you're going to go on. And you need to feel invested so we always were finessing of how much to give and at the same time, not overwhelm the audience with too much information. One of the things that I've learned, and I'm still learning, by the way, if the information that you're conveying is not earned, meaning that we as audience members are not asking the questions that we want answers to, then we're not going to absorb that information right up front. So it was, in a way grounded in the, the present moment with Lenore saying, then we got into trouble with the bishop. We were nuns, but then we got into trouble with the bishop. Ooh, what trouble? That's automatically sets up a question like, okay, there's more there that opens this time machine and then he takes you back. And who do we land with this extraordinary order led by Sister Anita Caspery? And then you meet a couple of these main characters and you meet finally the bishop. Any more information was too much and any less was gonna leave you basically floating and not knowing where we were going. And we wanted to do it in a way that was subversive. This is not your regular nun film. This is gonna subvert your expectations. I definitely wanna talk more about Anita because she's an extraordinary figure. But I, I wanted to bring in Corita Kent for a moment. A whole separate movie could have been made about Corita Kent, her artwork, and, and her activism. Made. I, I, I would love to see. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see a Corita documentary. She really needs her, her own film. 
How familiar were you with her work prior to starting the film? I didn't know who she was, but I knew some of her pieces, these icons of pop art, the love stamp, the wonder bread, serigraph, a lot of the pieces that are related to the different food advertising. Also, Love is Here to Stay, I had seen before, but I never had associated with her. When Kieran Shawnee came to me, I was like, oh, that's who made those? I had no idea. And that's actually how I was able to rope in our other extraordinary, brilliant producer, Judy Korn, who has a background in animation, has a background in graphic design, and was a huge fan of Corita but didn't know the story of the Immaculate Hearts. Judy, with her background in animation and design, was really just crucial in our team's effort to establishing the visual language of the film, which we wanted to really think outside the box, like the Immaculate Hearts sisters. Her, her designs were really integral to my early Catholic education. Either her designs or things deeply influenced by what she did. She really created the language of progressive Catholic imagery in a very dramatic way that continues to this day. You'll still see this in banners near altars all over this country and I'm sure other countries as well. I agree. And when I was growing up Catholic, I saw images that were very much in that language. And that's, it was great to see the root of that. Once she left the order in 68, she moved to Boston. And her work after leaving, it transitioned and it, and, and it transformed in a beautiful way. It was a lot more internal and introspective and a lot of watercolors. I, I love also her... If you're in the East Coast, just outside of Boston on I-95, there are these gas tanks that she actually designed. There are these beautiful designs on these enormous, humongous gas tanks. And so she has a beautiful trajectory as, as an artist. Really beautiful stuff and just a beautiful person. She's obviously an, an innovator in the graphic arts, but also she is very important to the story. It seems as though her art, her influence piqued the Archbishop's ire. It, it really did. She was basically one of the main targets of his wrath and of his pushback. In a way, you can credit McIntyre and the LA Archdiocese for helping Corita to find her best known style because she was basically forbidden from depicting the Holy Family. So she knew she had to transition into a more graphical, using more words in a visual language that was less figurative and more abstract and graphic. And that's where her best known work started to come out from. But every step of the way, it was always too out there, too blasphemous, too heretical in his view of what he thought sacred art should be. The wonderful thing about Corita is that she has such a great sense of humor. They put commissions together to approve her artwork, but she would just laugh it off and keep doing her thing. At the same time, I think she felt that she was always getting to trouble with her art. The, the beautiful thing about this community is that they always had each other's back. And one of the reasons she became an artist is because of the Immaculate Heart Sisters. They saw an aptitude, a gift for the arts in her, and they sent her to get her master's so she could be an art teacher. And when she was at, I think, USC studying to be an art teacher, she started exploring with the serigraph, with the silk screening, because she thought it was a good way to teach art. Then... She was experimenting. She was doing her own silk screens. And the head of the art department at the time, who was an extraordinary nun called Sister Magdalene Mary, started to take her. And this whole story, we couldn't fit into the film. That's one of the reasons why Corita needs her own movie, because Sister Magdalene Mary basically became her agent and started taking her prints 
and showing in our galleries, literally all over the country and the world even. Her art started getting more attention and attention, but it was really because of this extraordinary order that just elevated every single one of them. If, if Corita was just by herself, I personally, I cannot speak for her. The pressure of the patriarchy was so large that I think you needed a community to stand up to it in order for her to keep doing her thing. It's in the film, but wondered if you could just succinctly tell us what specifically did the nuns want? So the, the big reforms that they wanted, that they were implementing, A, that sisters could choose what their occupation would be, meaning not every sister had to be an, a teacher. If someone didn't want to be a teacher, they could be a nurse, they could be a doctor, they could be uh, a writer, they could be an artist, they could be whatever they felt their true calling was. Secondly, that they could determine their own schedule so they could pray when they wanted to pray and not be bound to a uniform schedule that they all abided by. Three, they could choose not to wear the habit. They could if they wanted to, but they didn't have to. These are the sort of the three core reforms. At the heart of it is that basically each sister could have a lot more autonomy over their own lives. I want to play devil's advocate for just a minute mm -hmm. by way of introduction and personal background, tell you that my upbringing is Jewish, not Catholic. However, I am married to a Catholic and... My wife's mother was a cloistered nun for seven years in Quebec in a very conservative missionary sisters of the Immaculate Conception was the name of the order. My mother-in-law was actually asked to leave the convent. She would have stayed, but for reasons that aren't entirely clear, they asked her to leave. She actually really was drawn to the order of the convent and to the rules. It was extremely strict. They couldn't speak. Visits by family were frowned upon and extremely limited and so on. But she basically says it was great and she wished she could have stayed. So my question is, at the beginning of the movie, we do see that the nuns, there's this catechism of the vows, which is obedience, poverty, and chastity. One could argue they knew what they were signing up for. It was right there from the beginning, and the church basically held them to that. So the question is, why did they rebel against something that seemingly was inherent in the mission that they signed up for? It's a, it's a great question, because if you ask them, I think most of them would say, we were not rebelling. Rebel hearts, in a way, we're playing with the meaning of rebel because to them, they were being obedient to, A, they were being obedient to the Second Vatican Council, call to reform, and they were being obedient to what they thought was the higher calling. Helen Kelly, Helen Kelly was the, the president of the college, and she said, obedience is to follow what the spirit is calling you to do. It's not obedience to a man, and it's not obedience to a hierarchy or a structure. It's a obedience to God. Of course, the patriarchy didn't see it that way, especially the patriarchy in the church. There were other nuns around the country that were making the same reforms. They didn't face the obstacles that the Immaculate Heart Sisters did. 
but I think at the, the core of it, they thought they were doing what they were supposed to do. They thought they were following the call of the Second Vatican Council. And by the way, poverty, chastity, and obedience, they thought they were doing those three while being a part of the world, while obedient to the council. So actually, I turn it around on the patriarchy. You told us to do this. You told us to reform. Now you're going back on your word. It wasn't that they were rebelling. It was that I think they were betrayed by the hierarchy of the church who were like, oh, never mind. That was too much. And that they were basically used as an example for other orders. And one of the people driving this move was Sister Anita. I have to say, my experience with nuns over many years, in general, they were not drab people. They had very strong personalities of all sorts of different types, some quiet, some louders, but charisma was not necessarily lacking in the nuns I knew. And certainly Sister Anita is an incredibly charismatic person. Her ability to answer questions in this sort of settings and really make it very clear where she stands without being aggressive. It clearly comes from a place of love and concern, but it is strong in your film because you're trying to make a movie about an order, about a collective enterprise, but at its heart, there are some very big personalities, almost mythic. And it's so true. And we saw it that way. When I read Anita's book and saw her interview and also the archival material, that interview that was done for a BBC program called Men Alive that did a feature on the Immaculate Heart Sisters back in 68 and then a follow-up in 1970. I was just blown away by her intellect, by her heart, by her leadership and what true leadership is, which is many ways is to be of service. The whole team was just inspired and blown away by Anita. I think she is definitely one of the great minds of the 20th century, extremely underappreciated. And we should all know Anita Caspery. We should all know Helen Kelly. We should all know Corita Kent and Pat Reef. As you said, they are big personalities. You look at the sisters that they led and the students that they taught, they planted so many seeds and their impact on a generation of women is so beyond what any of us could imagine I was just at the original Thinkers Festival in Telluride, and there was um, a woman there who stood up after the screening and said, I just have to say, I was a student at Immaculate Heart High School for one year, and it changed my life. And it shaped my view of the world and what I could do and my role in the world. That's what these women did. They inspired the generation. That's why I keep saying that the reverberations are today because they planted these incredible seeds that are now beautiful trees in in many ways. It was important in the process of making the film, even though telling the story of an order, that the order is the main character. But within that, Anita, Corita, Helen Kelly, Pat Reef, and the ones you see in the film are these thought leaders that uh, really needed for us to be invested into the whole journey. I can say that your film worked on me for sure. I knew nothing about this history prior to your movie. I thought a couple of things. One, I thought these are true civil rights leaders. And one page they've taken from the American civil rights movement and probably most civil rights movements is they are obedient to the original texts. 
For instance, you mentioned that they were going back to the Second Vatican Council and they were trying to be obedient. Their intent was to be obedient to that text. Then they themselves were very conscious of creating texts, for instance, their decrees that were written down and were incredibly articulate and powerful documents. The writings are so integral because it is literally the embodiment of them following the decrees of the Second Vatican Council and writing their own history and taking their story into their own hands. It is the, this autonomy. It is a movement of empowerment and it's embodied in these texts. Very much so like a constitution. These decrees hold the same symbolism as a constitution holds for our country. And I wanted to have, especially that scene of the passing of the decrees, to have that weight of that historical moment of this is them taking power into their own hands and writing their own history. That's why we actually embodied this physically with the light, because it was these births of creation. And it wanted to be really emblematic of what that moment was. And that moment was filled with light, like the way we see our founding fathers drafting the constitution. You know, the way we see that, I wanted to imbue that moment with kind of that same sort of reverence and, and admiration. And also text in a way coming from the patriarchy is also the reverse. And so the, the four points, you see that, that text that really pulled the rug underneath them and basically shattered. That's why that text is, the background is black and text is going backwards because literally everything that they worked for had been stopped. So the, the way we communicate a text really became, and, and this is to the credit of our incredible motion graphics team, is like, how can we bring this to life? Don't want it to be just a, a boring book. How can we imbue this with life and emotion to carry the emotional weight that these moments really deserve. Text is one thing in this film that you use very much, and I think, again, of Karita's influence, but also music. You use it beautifully. One of my personal favorites is taking this hyper-masculine song, My Generation, having the Patti Smith version where she sings it, she just changes it so dramatically. It's a totally different song. It's emblematic of the artistic power of women. But can you talk to us about working with Rufus Wainwright? Absolutely. It was such a dream that I was like, well, this is never going to be possible. But our amazing music supervisor, Tracy McKnight, I always say, Tracy McKnight, making dreams come true. From Nina Simone, Patti Smith to Rufus Wainwright and Sharon Van Etten. When I was talking to, to Tracy and she said, would you like one original song? I was like, yes, we need to ground the story in the present. I think an original song would be great. And I actually was greeted. I wanted two, one for the beginning, one for the end. And she said, Tracy said, well, I think Rufus might respond to this film and the story. We've sent him a cut of the film and he loved, not only he loved the story, he actually has a personal connection to the story. One of his family members from his grandparents' generation was actually a sister in this order. And so he actually was familiar with the story. He is actually still connected to the community through mutual friends. It was such a deep connection with him that the Secret Sister, the original song, literally just flowed out of him. He, he sent a few days later a demo and the lyrics, and it made us all cry with emotion because it's such a beautiful celebration but it doesn't let you off the hook, meaning there is a 
beautiful melancholy in, in the song because of the price that they paid. I think the song really embodies that. The lyrics with the habit in the hand going out into the streets and all the weight of that, the, the price that they paid, but really standing up and, and going forward. I think he did a masterful job in bringing all these disparate and layered emotions into a song that sends your heart soaring. We were just blown away. And also, I also have to call out our just genius composer, Ariel Marks, whose score is just beautiful. And she also brought all her heart and her genius into this and, and was such an extraordinary collaborator. It would be great to hear what the protagonist thought of the movie. Can you tell us what the reaction was to showing the movie to the members of the Immaculate Heart community? It's been pretty magical and great. I was just at the original Thinkers Festival with Lenore Navarro Dali and Rosa Manriquez. How people responded to having Lenore and Rosa there. They were like the rock stars of Telluride. People would keep coming up to them and wanting to talk to them. Students flocking to them and they were just so energized. It was really, really special and real joy. I think they're very happy with the film. They say that it really captures what they're about and it captures their journey. And one of the things that Rose says that like whenever she saw documentaries or news pieces on their story, she's always left sad. She's always left with the taste of the patriarchy, but with this, she felt joy. She felt joy because it went beyond and it captures the, the beautiful growth and then their awakening and, and what their spirit was about. That's the best thing anyone could ever say. We are so happy that they feel seen. I, I hope that this story can get out and this hidden gem of history can really be known, inform us today and help us to, to see where we are today. To have that reaction from the Immaculate Heart community, it felt like a perfect send-off. You really have created a joyful celebration and given us an important rediscovery of a movement and a community that has largely been forgotten. So I want to congratulate you. And I think it's clear from watching the film a couple of times that, as you've said in this interview, just as there was a community of the Immaculate Heart of Mary that buoyed that movement and made it possible so is the case with this film. It really is a community of artists who have brought this story to life. So congratulations to you and the entire community. But I would say this, a community requires a great leader. And just as Anita was a great leader, you too are a great leader, Pedro. Congratulations and thank you so much. I, I'm so humbled and wow, I uh, have no words. Thank you so much, Ken. It's been an incredible joy to be here. you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you think doesn't get the attention that it should get? Most recently, I was at the Telluride Film Festival and I saw a film directed by John Nettles called Land of Gold, which is an extraordinary documentary about the putting on of an opera by John Adams, Peter Sellers directed, and it's an opera about the gold rush, the California gold rush in the 1840s. It's, it's so brilliant because the film unpacks the history and our current reckoning with our own history here in California in a way that's very personal and it's through the staging of this opera. It is so layered and it's so brilliant. I, I just absolutely love the film.